Good morning and welcome to the Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast for this Wednesday when we try to make sense of the beguiling new world we find ourselves in. And if yesterday in the foreign policy vlog we talked at length about the dangers of the United States doing too much in Ukraine, which are real and palpable, now we're going to talk about Germany doing too little and the great danger that emanates from that. Well, let's start with the fact that Germany is absolutely the central state of the European Union. My uh, chief of staff and good friend, Will Sherano, and I used to play a game when I worked at the Heritage Foundation because Germany was a black hole where all good foreign policy ideas went to die for the last 20 years, as we're now seeing incredible detail in front of us, in agonizing detail. And we used to play a game, could we gather enough other European great powers to override Germany, being an isolationist country that had outsourced its security to the United States, its biggest market to China, and its energy supplies to Russia? Could we work around them and make Europe do something? And we'd say, you know, if we could get the British and the French and maybe the Poles and the Spanish, and we go over and over and over this, and this would be our parlor game at lunch, and we could never make it work. Germany and its tragedy, as Henry Kissinger got right structurally, is it's too big to be just another European power. It's too important to be just another Italy, Spain, Poland, France, or the UK. But it's not dominant enough to dominate the entire continent. And that's why we've had world wars and the the problems that came with the rising of Prussia into taking over all of Germany and German nationhood in 1870-71. Um, And this is just a structural, geographic, and power reality we have to live with. So we have to engage Germany in order to get anything done. If our parlor game proved to me anything, that it's it's, it's just too big uh, to do anything without it. It doesn't mean that if you have it, something will get done. But without Germany, very little will get done. And indeed, in European foreign security and energy policy, over these last 20 years, almost nothing's gotten done as during the somnambulant miracle years, Germany took a long winter's nap. And by the way, has there been a statesman other than Barack Obama more overrated by the mainstream media than Angela Merkel? Um, The almost always wrong Ian Bremmer said that she was the greatest statesman of our time, the bastion of the West. Uh, This is in Paul Krugman territory to do the opposite of the prognostication, and you'll be right. My goodness. Uh, The woman is responsible. She's the Stanley Baldwin of Germany's hapless position at the moment. And the current chancellor, Olaf Scholz, doesn't escape responsibility for this. He was, of course, finance minister under Merkel and was part of her last coalition government where literally nothing got done, even by her standards. And so now we look at Germany jolted into action by the reality that history hasn't come to an end as they said, that the Russians cannot be managed and that maybe they should have a foreign and strategic policy and not outsource their security concerns to the U.S., their trade concerns to China, and their energy concerns to Russia, that Germany needs agency. Because without Germany having agency, the EU won't have agency as it slips further and further behind the other great powers. It's just that simple. Um, There were great hopes for Schultz because in this moment of war, and war, of course, is a great clarifier, Schultz decided that that he could do better in what he called the Zeitenwende speech, the sea change speech, Zeitenwende meaning speed change. He promised 100 billion euro 
for Germany's defense to update Germany's antiquated defense spending. And we thought 2% of spending going forward on NATO GDP. Um, and this was this, you know, we've been begging the Germans to do this my entire adult life to only be arrogantly told by people who should be fired. War is an impossibility on the European continent. Wrong. All complacent German analysts. We know how to handle the Russians. Wrong. Um, and that as this is the case, uh, war is a, is a figment of the past. There hasn't been one day in recorded history without a war somewhere in the world. And so this was a convenience fiction that allowed Germany to do nothing. But Schultz seemed with the Zeitenwende speech to be changing this and promised 100 billion euro to update Germany's antiquated ammunition, for instance. It's been estimated that German ammunition is so low in certain areas that they could only sustain Ukrainian era fighting for two or three days. They've so taken the peace dividend, so realized that their army is hollowed out in an irrelevance, I said to one German general, my football team in high school could take your army. And he said, how dare you say that? I said, how dare you do that? It's not me saying it that's the problem. It's your being asleep at the switch for a generation. That's the problem. And now they're paying the piper. But the Zeitenwende speech was an effort to update this. And suddenly everything I'd asked for came to pass and in a matter of days. The problem is that there's been an awful lot of backsliding. And, and let's look at what I mean specifically before we look at the root of the problem, the trouble with Germany. Uh, and here's my case for there being backsliding. Now it's not entirely clear that Schultz meant spending an extra 100 billion euro to update Germany's antiquated uh, weaponry and spending 2%. It seems that this 100 billion euro was a way to get them up to that 2% number, but that that going forward was not guaranteed and there would not be a separate fund. What most of us thought who listened to the speech, who looked at the transcripts and thought about this was that it was both. It now just seems to be a one-off. That's not going to work. We're all paying attention. We're all acutely aware now of Germany's foreign policy follies over the last 20, 25 years. And you don't get out from under this without us noticing. And so it can't be 100 billion for increased weaponry um, in lieu of spending 2% going forward. It has to be both. And Schultz is already backtracking on this. It's vague as things get in Berlin. I lived there for a number of years. And things have a way of backtracking and disappearing into the fog. And this seems to be one of them. It also seems clear that Germany tends to supply weapons to Ukraine um, only when under maximum pressure and as light as they can possibly imagine. If you talk about howitzers and heavy armor, they're slowest. And it's only when the press and the rest of the governments of the West, the particularly the incredibly impatient Poles and Americans, point this out that begrudgingly last, dragging their feet, Germany agrees to supply the weapons they've already agreed to give to Kiev. So they're backtracking on the new spending. They're supplying weapons at the slowest possible speed. Um, they're backing down from the maximum energy sanctions uh, on natural gas because this would affect them fundamentally. Because, And again, I think Robert Habeck, the Green Minister of Economics, has done a tremendous job, um, and energy has done a tremendous job, moving them this far forward. But these constant opt-outs, uh, we can deal with natural gas in two or three years if we're lucky. 
This isn't cutting it because, in essence, Germany's energy stupidity over the last generation, not Habeck's fault, is funding Putin's war machine between oil and natural gas to the tune of the EU supplying Russia with a billion euros a day. And this more than offsets the aid they're giving the Ukrainians. And even though they're moving, they've got to move faster. And fast just isn't in the German vocabulary. Um, fourth, um, Schultz thinks going and meeting with Zelensky is just a publicity stunt. And of course, for the publicity mad Boris Yeltsin, or sorry, Boris Johnson, um, I can see why he thinks this, but actually I've learned this, that beyond grand historical forces that I learned about in college and as a professor in my role as a political risk person and Washington creature, leaders getting to know each other actually matters. The personal really matters in history as well as grand historical forces. And it would be fantastic if Schultz could get over it and go see Zelensky. If he doesn't want a photo op, don't have a photo op, but they get to know each other I think would solve a lot of these misunderstandings. And he shows no signs of wanting to do this. He's also said in line with Macron that there's no fast track for Ukraine getting into the EU and that it will be decades in length before they do. And this leaves Ukraine in a no man's land. Zelensky's already said he's not going to go forward with NATO membership in line with Russian wishes. So there can be a deal, a peace deal at some point. But that means the EU aspects of this become ever more important. And here Germany and France take the lead. Macron has said it's going to be decades. You don't get to cut the line, the Germans said, as only Germans do, caring about the little rules and ignoring the big picture because it would be unfair to the states and the Balkans. Um, what kind of geostrategic logic is this? We're aware that this is just another German excuse. And when you add all this up, so they're backtracking on defense spending. They're supplying weapons at a glacial pace to the Ukrainians. They're moving as fast as they can, meaning slowly on energy sanctions and critically natural, natural gas, not much at all. Um, Schultz thinks meeting with Zelensky is a publicity stunt. And therefore not moving the Ukrainians forward. And so decades await before they could join the EU, keeping them in a no man's land. What in the world is going on? Because here is the difference in interests between Germany and the United States. The United States geostrategically, and again, let's never take out the word geography from geopolitics, as we often do, is in an ocean away has other fish to fry dealing with China as the preeminent strategic challenge of the era, wants to pivot rightly to the Indo-Pacific, where all the risk and all the reward in the world are located, wants to do all that. And to do that, they need allies that can look after their own backyard, as it's grandly called the European security architecture. And here you have a Germany under Merkel, mercantilist, commercial first, almost no foreign policy, but a commercial policy willfully putting itself in the pocket of the Russians over energy issues and then saying, gee, there's nothing we can do, as though they had no agency in doing this in the first place, letting the Americans defend them while they despise American policy and do gas deals with the Russians. Does that about sum up Mr. Bremer's call for Merkel being the greatest statesman of her era? This guy shouldn't be listened to. Wrong about Brexit, wrong about Merkel, wrong about almost everything. Establishmentarians, particularly in my line of work, have a pretty awful record at political risk lately, and they should be called to account for it, as we all should in a republic. And into all these things that are wrong, you have to ask why. What is the trouble with Germany beneath all this? Because Germany is next door 
to Ukraine. This isn't some faraway problem. Certainly what happens with Ukraine is a primary European interest by the forces of geography. And for America, it's a secondary interest, again, due to the forces of interests and geography, realism and geopolitics. Whether the Germans like it or not, realism rules the world, and trust me, they don't like it. But war isn't some anachronism. It hasn't gone away, um, whether they like it or not. Russia is a great revisionist power at their doorstep, and the fantasy notion that somehow they can buy them off with trade and change their behavior through Ostpolitik, as though Ostpolitik won the Cold War, which I've had Germans actually say to me and believe in some sort of fanciful way, rather than American military mind and diplomatic adroitness under leaders from Harry Truman to Ronald Reagan. And instead of all this, they believe in these utopian fantasies, and it's up to us to get in their face and say, it's your philosophy that's wrong. Recently at a Catholic conference, Prime Minister Chancellor Schultz, who was a conscientious objector and is a member of the center-left SPD, which long has bizarre ties to Russia, um, very close ties to Russia, the SPD, and very anti-American ties, um, which really shouldn't be going on anymore, you know, after 70 years after the start of the Cold War. I think it's pretty clear whose side Stalin was on and whose side Jack Kennedy was on, but they have a real problem with this as a party. And Schultz had been a conscientious objector, typically, to get out of army duty, and he asked at the Catholic Conference a question that is asked of conscientious objectors, should we be fighting violence with violence? This man, who says naive, fatuous things like this, should we be fighting violence with violence, lives in a world that simply doesn't exist. This is utopian fantasy. This isn't funny. This isn't wrongheaded. This is disastrous because he finds himself spouting these naive platitudes at the head of the most important country in Europe. And an awful lot of members of the SPD agree with him and are anti-American and pro-Russian instinctively somehow, as though Ostpolitik did anything other than make Germans richer. And he really believes that you shouldn't be fighting or we should question fighting violence with violence. Well, let's think about this for a minute. Let's take this seriously. What if Gandhi had run into Stalin? or Mao, or Pol Pot. What do we think would have happened to Gandhi? He'd have been up against a wall in 15 minutes and shot. This is reality. If you want to do good, you have to actually understand the world and not just feel good. And of course he would have been. Nonviolence wouldn't have worked with extremely violent people who are psychopaths. Stalin, Mao, and Pol Pot would qualify. And of course he'd have been shot immediately. Violence fighting violence is why Hitler doesn't run the world, for that matter. Do we really think pacifism would have stopped Hitler? No, it was the brave boys of Omaha Beach who stopped Hitler. Violence fighting violence. The only way carrots rather than sticks work in a world, if all you have are carrots and you have no sticks, the only way that works is if you live in a world populated entirely by rabbits. And as Vladimir Putin has shown, Russia and Russian revisionism, and Vladimir Putin, and the Siloviki around him are not rabbits, they're tigers. And to fight a tiger, you need a gun. And this basic philo philosophical black hole is the problem. 
Schultz is doing the right thing. He's appalled, I'm sure, by the atrocities committed by the Russians at Bucha and other places. He accepts that Germany has a role to play in the European security architecture and that the house is now on fire. And he's moving, but he's constantly doing it begrudgingly, as slow as he can, because it goes against his basic philosophy, which has been proven wrong in front of his face. And it's this philosophical and ideational problem that's there. Let's count the things the Germans have been wrong about. War still exists in the international sphere. War still exists on the European continent. Trade does not necessarily buy off other people's nationalism and house-trained tigers such as Vladimir Putin. In fact, it merely strengthens him and puts you in his pocket over energy rather than him being in your pocket as is clear. Not having a military and taking a holiday from history is not necessarily a good idea because if you don't master history, it will surely master you. And that's what's happening at the present. So on all these fronts, Schultz is being dragged kicking and screaming into the 21st century. And the problem with going slowly, the problem with saying nonsense like we have to ask if violence should be used to fight violence is it shows an utterly a historical view of the world, an utterly ahistorical view of the world. Again, use my thought experiment. Think of Gandhi dealing with Pol Pot or Stalin and how far nonviolence would have gotten us. And on the other hand, think of the boys at Omaha Beach. It's German philosophy, utopian philosophy, and ironically, a utopian philosophy at the head of the most powerful country in Europe that keeps the EU divided, that keeps the Germans underperforming, and that threatens uh, harming the Ukrainian cause, for which Germany undoubtedly has primary interests, unlike the United States. So the trouble with Germany ultimately is ideational. And as Schultz honestly says, his, his pacifist, SPD, pro-Russian, anti-American views coming to the surface and colliding with reality. And his way of dealing with this, which is very human, is to go along with reality, but begrudgingly, slowly, at the slowest possible pace, thereby not getting the efficacy of making the Zeitenwende, the sea change. And so there has been a change, but it's been slower. And what's hamstringing Germany, the trouble with Germany, is a rotten philosophy that is utopian and has nothing to do with the world that we live in. I don't want to feel good, I want to do good. And to do that, as Edmund Burke, the great realist philosopher, said, you have to see the world as it is, warts and all, and then make it better. This refusal to see tigers in the jungle and to see only rabbits is why the Germans presently have only carrots, when what we need is them to have a gun. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this Around the World in 20 Minutes, The Trouble with Germany. Wanted to get that one off my chest because the problems ultimately are ideational and philosophical in the world. And that's where political risk firms versed in history like mine, I think, tend to do better because we look at the philosophy and the ideas of people as they've lived them in real time. For those of you who haven't sub subscribed, and so many of you have in the last few months, thank you ever so much. Please do so now. 
And for those of you who have subscribed, please do give. We're only asking $70 a year. That's $7 a month or $70 a year. And for that $70 or the espresso that's sitting invitingly at my left hand here, we give you Monday the foreign policy vlog, Tuesday the culture. We're next going to look at albums you have to listen to before you die. Wednesday, our flagship around the world in 20 minutes, which we've just finished. On Thursday, we have JL Ryder take us through the society. And on Friday, Publius taking us through the economics. And going forward, we're excited to say that we're going to have some book serializations of good friends of mine saying things uh, that I think you're going to find really very interesting. Uh, particularly my friend Garrett Murch is going to let us serialize his book very kindly, Ezzy's Education, which is coming up, which is a microcosm and a satire for where America is the way it is. I think you'll love it. I've had a read of it, and it's a fantastic book, and we look forward to serializing it in an old Victorian way here at the site. For all these things that you get, we're only asking $70 a year or one espresso a month. So please do give. Thanks ever so much and on to the next. Have a great day.